Hello and welcome to another episode of Opposition Cast. I'm Nigel Fletcher and uh, we've got a bit of a first for you on this episode uh, because we've been on tour. Uh, I've been up to the Labour Party conference in Liverpool uh, at the start of this week um, and uh, wandering around, uh, talking to people and uh, getting a sense of how the Labour Party is is feeling, uh, whether they think their, their days in opposition uh, may be coming to an end, possibly. Um, certainly they're very upbeat, um, and uh, not everyone I spoke to wanted to appear on the podcast, sadly. Uh, not all of them had time, actually, um, but um, we did get some uh, some good conversations, which I'll bring you later on uh, in the episode. Um, but uh, before I do that, um, I want to do what uh, they normally do on these uh, sorts of programmes when they've... Uh, uh, been out live on location, which is to go over live to their correspondent on the scene. Uh, well, um, it's not live, we're not live, and the conference has finished. Um, so um, we would need a TARDIS, really, to go back in time to do that, which is um, fortunate that we have one um, great length there, because there is a Doctor Who exhibition um, at the moment in Liverpool, which I went along to, which was great fun. Um, and they do have a TARDIS there, which I've borrowed, of course, uh, in order to go back in time to speak to our correspondent on the scene, um, who is my past self. Um, so here we go, um, over to uh, the conference centre on Tuesday, I think it was. Uh, yes, it would have been Tuesday. Um, and uh, yes, uh, over live now to our correspondent, uh, Nigel Fletcher. Well, thank you, Nigel. And uh, you join me not quite live uh, from the Labour Party conference here in Liverpool uh, at a conference centre that is, I think it's fair to say, uh, possibly one of the windiest places in the world. Uh, if you put a couple of wind turbines out on the terrace outside, I think we could solve the energy crisis. Um, but this is the final day that I'm here at the Labour Party conference. This is the day of the leader's speech on Tuesday. Keir Starmer is about to speak. Uh, I'm just walking through the conference centre now and there's a huge queue snaking its way around the outside of the main hall of Labour Party members waiting to get in to hear the speech. Uh, queuing, of course, becoming something of a national obsession in recent weeks. Uh, this queue, not quite as large as the queue we saw for the lying in state, but uh, it's getting on for it. Um, and walking about here, it's uh, fascinating looking at the number of stalls around here, as well as the trade unions. I'm just walking past the GMB now, uh, LGBT, Labour and all of the rest. But there's also a lot of corporates here and people who've been coming to conference for several years have been saying this is uh, a bit of a sign that the Labour Party is perhaps being seen more as a contender for government after several years in which that perhaps wasn't the case. Also here, lots of media organisations, uh, Times Radio, uh, who uh, very kindly indulged me by having me on every week, uh, and I did that the other day as well. Uh, BBC, Sky, GB News, uh, LBC and Global over there as well. Um, lots of journalists walking around, I've just seen Chris Mason just over there by the press office, talking to Adam Fleming of Newscast. Uh, and I think I've just walked in the back of the shot of Politics Live. If you want to go and have a look at that and uh, uh, interviewing David Lammy there, you'll see some odd character walking behind them, talking into a dictaphone. That's me. Um, so lots going on here, uh, but the main focus really on the leader's speech and what Keir Starmer will be saying uh, to the party faithful 
Um, interestingly, last night I was at a, an event in our hotel, and uh, it was a karaoke night uh, until the small hours, uh, which ended and I think we can probably play a clip of it, um, in traditional form, but uh, a bit of a flashback to previous years. Uh, this is what uh, the karaoke night ended with. Labour Party members there at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool ending their karaoke night with things going to get better and interestingly a chant of Tony, Tony, Tony. Uh, not something you might have heard quite so much during the Corbyn years. Um, so there we are, that's a bit of a flavour of the atmosphere here at the Labour Party conference here in Liverpool. Um, lots of people walking about, some of whom I tried to get an interview with, um, but of course everyone is really busy, they're rushing around from one fringe meeting to another, so it's very difficult to pin anyone down. Um, Owen Jones uh, was meandering around doing his own Vox Pops and interviews a little earlier, and uh, unfortunately was a bit too busy to speak to us, um, as were a few other Shadow Cabinet members and other people who we uh, tried to get to speak to us on the podcast, but were being hurriedly rushed away by their, their aid to get to a, another fringe meeting. But we have spoken to some really interesting people, lots of uh, friends of the podcast up here in Liverpool, academics, journalists and politicians. Um, so we'll speak to some of those in a moment or two. Um, but first, I'll say we're waiting for Keir Starmer's speech. So let's uh, fast forward in time now and uh, hear a bit of what Keir Starmer is about to say. Conference I knew in April 2020 when I became leader of this party, we had a big task before us. We had to change our party and prepare for power all in one go. Not change for change's sake. Change with a purpose. To make our party fit to serve our country. That's why we had to rip out anti-Semitism by its roots. That's why we had to show our support for NATO is non-negotiable. Show we want business to prosper. Shared unworkable policy. Country first, party second. And I, and I didn't do this alone. Conference, we did it together. And it shows. We've taken councils in Scotland, in Wales, in every part of England, from Southampton to Stevenage, Wrexham to Wolverhampton. We've shown Labour can win again anywhere. We won in Wakefield with Simon, our first by-election game for a decade, Simon. But let's not kid ourselves. The next two years will be tough. The Tories want a fifth term and they will stop at nothing to achieve it. And because of their record, because of the state of Britain, they're getting desperate. With so little that's good to defend, they will lash out. We need to be prepared, disciplined, focused. 
spend every day working to earn the trust of the British people, meet their attacks with hope, provide the leadership this country so desperately needs. Because as in 1945, 1964, 1997, this is a Labour moment. So, conference. Say it loud and believe it. Britain will deal with the cost of living crisis. Britain will get its future back. A country where aspiration is rewarded, where working people succeed, a force for good in the world, a clean energy superpower, a fairer, greener, more dynamic nation. This is my commitment to you, the national mission of the next Labour government. And together with the British people, we will do it. Thank you, conference. Keir Starmer there, um, ending his speech to the Labour Party conference uh, on Tuesday of this week, uh, and ending that not-quite-live report by me uh, from the conference centre. And apologies for the sort of breathless nature of that. I realised, listening back to it, um, that it was possibly not a great idea to record that whilst um, walking around at speed. Um, so, um, yeah, I think the speech from Keir Starmer was very interesting because of the um, emphasis it seemed to put on Labour as a, a credible alternative to the Conservatives. There was a lot of talk of um, how he had changed the party um, and the unity that he was um, seeking to portray. A real break from the recent past of the Jeremy Corbyn years. Um, but all of the rhetoric, uh, and we saw this in speeches by shadow ministers throughout the week, uh, was about what the next Labour government is going to do. Um, and that important thing that an opposition needs to do to present itself as an alternative government, um, it didn't feel quite as hypothetical as it sometimes does. Um, it wasn't a case of saying, well, if we were in government, we would be doing the following. It was saying, we are going to do the following things in government. A lot of confidence um, behind it um, in, in that sense. So uh, you heard a lot, uh, and you heard in the last uh, few sections of that speech, uh, a lot of references to previous Labour winners. He um, invoked 1945, 1964 and 1997 um, and really trying to cast himself alongside Attlee, Wilson and Blair as another Labour winner. So a really interesting speech and particularly in the context of uh, what was going on from the, the fallout from the uh, Conservative uh, budget or fiscal event um, from the previous Friday and a real sense that uh, Labour was on the march um, and that's before we've seen some of the opinion polls that we've seen uh, this week after the Labour Party conference a real sense of confidence um, about the Labour leader in that speech um, so I mentioned in my uh, report from the conference uh, that I'd been going around waving a microphone in people's faces asking them to speak to us um, and some of them actually did which is a, a relief and um, one of the people I was very pleased to bump into was Professor Jane Green um, who uh, has appeared on the podcast before um, she's a, a great friend of ours um, she is a professor uh, of politics at uh, Nuffield College Oxford um, and uh, I recommend you go back and listen to the podcast we did with her. Um, she also spoke at our um, Opposition Studies conference uh, back in July, uh, and uh, I'm hoping we can bring that to you uh, in a future episode, uh, the recording of that. 
Um, but in the meantime, um, a very quick clip. Um, I bumped into Jane uh, just in the corridor, really, in the main thoroughfare of the conference. Um, and uh, this is uh, a bit of our conversation. Um, yeah, standing here in this sort of very busy concourse at Labour Party Conference, which is probably the busiest place we could possibly be, um, I bumped into Dr. Jane Green, a veteran of the podcast. Um, so um, what do you think the, the mood is of this conference? Is this a party that's preparing for government, do you think? So, I mean, everybody keeps saying that. So, if everybody keeps saying that, I think they might have more intel than I do. But um, if you look at the opinion polls, obviously, it's probably the most kind of you know that delegates have the most reason to be cheerful than they've had for a really, really long time. So, it would make sense. Yep. Yeah. And as a, an academic and as a researcher, what are you finding most interesting about this? Oh, it's just. I think what's interesting is how how uncertain everything is in the context of you know the elections that we've had, in the context of all the different shocks, the different crises, the economic context, the new prime minister, the the policies that's that's left so many people scratching their heads. You know, so much of this is up in the air. It's so uncertain, um, and we have and we're in the middle of it. You know, we haven't yet seen all of the dust settle. We don't yet know what the public are going to make of all of this. Um, so that's fascinating to me, mm. you know, that there's all to play for for Labour, but obviously, you know, you've got a Tory Prime Minister who's got a two-year plan, presumably until the next election, and wants to deliver economic growth, and will she do it? Most people would say that's looking unlikely right now, but it's not impossible, and I think, you know, it's it's just how much uncertainty there is in this new electoral context, and, and, and you know, what does this really mean? And we're just in the middle of it, we're in the eye of the storm, and I don't think we yet know how it's all going to fall out. Brilliant. Well, I'll let you get on because you're waiting for somebody, but I shall catch up with you soon. Jane Green there, speaking to me in a very noisy part of the conference centre. Um, not as noisy as it would have been outside, uh, where, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the wind was blowing, uh, howling down uh, the side of the uh, conference centre. It wasn't just me who was saying that. Um, Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, also tweeted about that as well um, and made the same uh, joke that I did about putting wind turbines down uh, to solve the energy crisis. Anyway, um, Jane Green uh, made some, I think, very interesting points there as, as ever um, about the turmoil we're seeing politically um, and the fact that, um, that some of the economic um, developments we're seeing, uh, to put it uh, politely, um, are, I think, going to have a significant political effect. Um, and as she described it, we really are at the eye of the storm. We don't know how that's going to turn out, um, and that's what makes um, politics so interesting at the moment. One of the um, significant things about that, I think, as well, is that it means that a lot more people are turning their minds towards the potential or the prospect um, of there being a change of government at the next election and of what that would mean for not just policy but also um, for government itself um, and um, the institutions of government and so on uh, with new people coming in and uh, that was an issue that was touched on in a number of fringe meetings that were held around the conference um, including one that was organised by um, Policy Exchange that I uh, went to and one of the speakers there was the chair of the Public Accounts Committee uh, Meg Hillier MP somebody who I think holds a very interesting role because of course the Public Accounts Committee um, scrutinises government expenditure but is backed up by uh, quite a lot of resources in terms of the National Audit Office which uh, 
produces um, reports and, and uh, research for it. Um, and Mekhelia, of course, being a Labour MP and being in opposition, has her own perspective uh, on these things. So I began by asking her if there is a change of government, and we do see Labour ministers coming into office, how important it is that they are properly prepared for that in terms of understanding how government works uh, and understanding the culture of Whitehall and how to get the best out of civil servants. Oh, I think it's absolutely critical, but I think you can't wait till people are elected to have that training because you walk into a department on the first day, whether a junior minister or secretary of state, you're going to be really busy on day one. And the civil service, having been a minister, has a very good way of inducting you into your portfolio. And over a two-week period, if you read everything you get sent, they can, they can instill that knowledge. The key thing I think that has to be done beforehand is to make sure that, one, that people understand the, sort of the normal probity rules, how to work with the civil service, what the capacity of the civil service is, and just sort of general rules of engagement, because let's not face it. I mean, well, the current Labour MPs, only 27 have ever been in government and a number of them will retire at next election. So there isn't a great capacity of that knowledge. And, I think, and the second thing that's got to happen before people go in is they've got to actually um, have um, some sort of training about, what well, understanding about what they're proposing and how best to pr progress that so that actually that's stress tested before they even meet the civil service. So looking, you know, getting... You know, a panel of experts, ex-M, ex-ministers, maybe members of the Public Accounts Committee, to question and challenge and push them a bit, so that when they go in and have to explain policies to the civil service on day one, they're well honed and they are very clear, because that clarity is the first step in getting good delivery. Mm. And just sort of reflecting on your time and your current experience of, uh, uh, chairing the Public Accounts Committee, um, do you think that the role of sort of overseeing the nitty-gritty of, of government has be become more important in recent years? And, and, and why is that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it certainly has because, I mean, we've got, well, I mean, very recent years, billions and billions of pounds being spent eye-watering sums. I mean, you think that the typical NHS budget in about 20, in 2019, the NHS budget was about 150 billion, and you think that we've spent 370 billion or so on uh, COVID, and then uh, at least 50 billion, well, and ticking a year on, on energy. So we are looking at huge sums of money where a small percentage saving or efficiency could build a school or a hospital. I mean, so this is big numbers we're talking about. But I think it's also important that we hold government honest. And the, for the civil service, when they come in front of my committee, they do refer to the documents and protocols they're expected to behave alongside, you know, take it, bear in mind, or abide by the Green Book, uh, spend, uh, spending public money. These are documents that in, hold them to account as accounting officers. They refer to them increasingly more now than they did a, a decade ago or so when I was on the first on the committee and I think that's really important because someone's got to hold that honesty ring and it's very tempting for ministers you know even in the best of times to push a bit about that but actually if you put, if a minister pushes too far we, as we're seeing possibly with this current well likely with this current government we're going to have a real fin public finance problem down the line so at the very least probity's got to be part of it my worry is that a government of the type we've had over recent years where not all of them but some ministers have really pushed it to the wire it can be very difficult for civil servants to resist, not because they're not wanting to resist it, but the, the pressure on them becomes, they're there to fulfil the needs of their political masters and they want to try and find a way to be helpful. Add to that that you've got um, the five-year term and you've got senior civil servants being sacked. So the people who've challenged might worry that and might actually have been sacked and then the next people coming through, however bright and talented they are, know that there's a point at which maybe they don't push it in order to protect their career options. And it's a big thing for someone to say, well I don't care what I say if I'm going to be sacked tomorrow and I think that, that lack of 
respect actually for a senior civil servant is a, is a worry. They're not, you know, they don't always get it all right all the time, and they would admit that. But this uh, approach, like taking Tom Scholar out of the, the Treasury, is sh shocking to me. Mm. And you're quite unusual in opposition MPs in that you have quite a well-resourced uh, sort of backup in order to do your job. Um, Members of the shadow cabinets, even the leader of the opposition, don't have that resource. They don't have sort of huge resources of professional sort of officials helping them to go through the numbers, helping them to sort of, you know, really probe into the detail of what government is doing. Um, do you think that the sort of the, the way you're able to do the job highlights a deficiency in the way that opposition more generally works? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's quite important to say that the National Audit Office, which is 850 people based in Newcastle and London, are there as a resource for Parliament. The Comptroller and Auditor General, who heads the National Audit Office, is an officer of the House of, of House of Commons. He's there to serve all parliamentarians and actually will take up issues that any individual MPs raise, and everyone can use that resource. So, although obviously my committee uses it, uh, uh, work with them very closely. You know, we, we, we are first refusal on taking hearings on all of their reports that that resource is available to all. But I absolutely agree that there is a shortage of resource for the opposition. And one of my first jobs, if I were in government tomorrow, would be to say we need to increase short money. That's the pot of money set up in, I think it was in the Wilson years, to give money to the opposition um, so that they could fund, uh, well, a proper op an official mm. opposition, His Majesty's official opposition, as, it would, as it's now called. And I think we have a real shortage of people. So you've got very senior people who will walk into the, some of the biggest jobs of state with one, maybe if they're lucky, two special advisors, often quite young and inexperienced people. I mean, they get experience, but they're not necessarily recruited because they've got knowledge of the subject either, and because they're not all paid uh, as well as they might be in the, in the real job. So there is a real resource issue, and I think that is, a, is terrifying. And during COVID, I had actual ministers saying to me, we're worried, we're not being scrutinised well enough. And one said, look, I've had this very poor briefing because the civil service know we're not being challenged. They don't have officials because of the way COVID worked. They didn't have, a, they didn't have officials in the box next to them to give advice. And it was true that we weren't giving them a run for their money, partly because of COVID, but partly because you know, your average junior minister three down the line has no resource other than their existing parliamentary office. And I can tell you as an inner London, London, city London MP, my existing parliamentary office is doing my parliamentary work for my constituents. There is no extra resource for other stuff. So I don't know how those ministers manage, and shadow ministers manage, and I think it is very, very imbalanced. And when I was in government, I had no idea how little information my opposite number, my opposite number from number of years was James Brokenshire, mm. now deceased. If I had known how little notice he had of some of the bills and things coming through, I would have talked to him about it more myself. I just didn't realise how out of the loop uh, the official opposition is. And I think if I were in, in uh, a ministerial job again, I would share much more with my opposite number. Marvellous. That's great. Thanks very much indeed. Meg Hillier there, the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, with some really interesting thoughts on the need to prepare incoming ministers for what they're going to face in government. And uh, I think that some of her reflections on uh, being in opposition more generally and the need uh, for proper resourcing are things that certainly I'm very interested in as well. Um, and uh, I think her perspective on that was, was really interesting. So I'm very grateful to uh, Meg Hillier for, for speaking to me at the conference there. And uh, sticking with the theme of preparing for entering government from opposition, uh, I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast uh, a great friend of ours, uh, Dr. Catherine Haddon from the Institute for Government. Uh, you may remember that uh, Kath joined us on the podcast uh, quite some time ago to talk about uh, transitions to government. 
Um, and uh, we bumped into each other um, around the conference um, uh, where she was speaking at a number of fringe meetings and, of course, doing lots of media appearances uh, as well. Uh, we had a, a very useful chat, but um, we thought it would be uh, worthwhile to have a, a proper interview when we uh, both returned from Liverpool uh, and to come back to London. So we caught up on Zoom uh, uh, at the end of the Labour Party conference, uh, and this is our discussion. After sort of uh, however many days at the Labour Party conference, quite a lot of talk about the atmosphere there. Uh, do you think it? Uh, do you think it feels like a party that is preparing for government? I think there was a noticeable difference uh, in party conference this year compared to last year. Last year, obviously, there was a, a lot of internal battles going on, something we're very used to when it comes to um, a Labour Party. And I was listening back to one of our own podcasts on you know party conferences what they're about and they said well Labour yeah you can always expect some kind of internal row about something or other somebody says something and actually what was incredible this time around was that they were very um, focused on sort of message discipline discipline generally um, you know shadows front benches all seem to be sort of singing from the same hymn sheets um, you know reinforcing each other reinforcing the sort of central message and so forth um, and there was also a noticeable change in the way that other people were treating them. Um, there was definitely more money there, which um, by which we mean, you know, more corporates, uh, stalls and exhibitions and so forth. Um, uh, different kinds of people, not just the party activists, um, but also, you know, various people coming to, you know, get to know potentially um, a future, a future government in waiting. Um, and it just creates a very different atmosphere. And uh, talking to a lot of journalists, they were saying, you know, oh, it's a bit dull, um, nothing exciting's happening or anything like that. I think for, for Labour, that was a win. Um, so, and then obviously, you know, it's all taking place at the backdrop of this extraordinary um, situation that um, the Conservative government have put themselves in. So, yes, it, it really did feel like a party which is... Um, at least contemplating the fact that it could very well be in government in a couple of years um, and, and sort of going through a thought out process of what it needs to be doing at this stage to get there. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see the contrast between that and the Conservatives um, in terms of, of how they are each, you know, responding to it. Mm. And I mean, a lot of that's on the, the politics of a party preparing for government and trying to sort of demonstrate to the public that it's being quite responsible and can be trusted with with government. Um, but on the, the the practicality, as you said there, they are themselves now contemplating the idea that they could potentially be in government in a few years time. Mm. Um, what are the kind of things that they'll need to be thinking about behind the scenes as they contemplate a potential transition? You, you've mm. written quite a lot on on the, this process of transitioning from opposition to government. What are the kind of things that you know, aside from the political um, facing, sort of public facing politics of it? What are the things they need to be doing below the surface to to start thinking about that that potential transition? Yeah, so I have been in sort of writing and, and talking to people about this since uh, I first started the Institute for Government. So that's going on sort of 14 years now. Um, and I have, you know, carved it down to the four, the three P's, as I put it, of preparation for government. Um, and I'm going to do them actually in the reverse order that I normally talk about them, because we can get through the one we've, we've kind of hinted at, which is policies. 
um, because obviously a lot of you know what everyone thinks of when it comes to policies for for government is the manifesto it's getting elected it's you know what's going to excite people get them to support an opposition party or so forth but actually when it comes to preparation for government it's a really difficult balancing act because you're obviously trying to um get elected so you want to be able to just promise the earth you know but you also obviously want to look as responsible as a um a party for government as possible so costing of policies but also what we emphasize is you need to think about implementation so you don't actually want to create hostages to fortune you don't want to sort of promise specifics of the solutions that haven't then been sort of tested in reality with civil servants when they're telling you the sort of the inside look of, of what the problems are on the ground because um, implementation is actually a lot more complicated you know you have not you don't just have to think about getting legislation through but you have to think about um, the delivery agencies you know who is is able to actually put this into practice and do they have capacity what else are they going to have to stop doing there's so many things the sort of delivery chain that, that Michael Barber talks about that you have to sort of bear in mind and it's very difficult for opposition parties to do that so um, we emphasize an awareness of those challenges and to start thinking through some of the risks of that and, and you know, the good um, sort of preparation for government, Thatcher before 79, Blair before 97, actually there was not a lot of policy detail in their sort of pitches to the electorate. There was a vision, but they didn't sort of create too many hostages to fortune before they got into government. So that's P1. Uh, P2 um, is plans p3 is um people and I'll, I'll sort of cover both of those a bit quicker um people i mean it's really about how many of your uh, front bench uh, and you know your shadow cabinet in particular have experience of government do they understand what it is like to be a minister and the sort of shock to the system and so some of that can be about explaining to them what happens on the first few days what the civil service will do in terms of taking you and your diary and then you know sort of this very close embrace and uh, and also it's expectation management you know you go from somebody who is able to sort of comment on all the issues to suddenly being in charge of it and so even the things you haven't thought about could go horribly wrong in your first few days in government and you're the person in charge now so you have to deal with it so there's a certain sort of awareness training that you can take them through it nobody can really get an idea of what it's actually like in government until you've lived it but um, there's an awful lot you can do especially with our ministers reflect set of interviews to sort of hear from former ministers and understand it and in terms of plans it, this is really something very important for um, the leadership team uh, um, and, and in particular uh, Lotto as we call it the leader of the opposition's office to think about the sort of structure of their government how's their number 10 going to operate you know how are they going to work with uh, the cabinet um, what's the relationship going to be like between number 10 cabinet office the treasury what are the various sort of units and again there we emphasize quite a lot of sort of learning from what's worked in the past because when you come in and you try to change everything about number 10 especially if you get rid of it because of the not invented here uh, view like Cameron did of getting rid of the delivery units in 2010 that can really sort of undermine because the civil service is used to doing things um, in a certain way, but also they exist because they work. Um, so it's kind of like, how can you think about how to have an effective centre and therefore an effective government? And, and what are the sort of lessons of how government works effectively that you need to make sure you're incorporating? So those are the three P's. Marvel. 
marvelous um and in terms of the the transition one of the things that you you have written a lot about is um the, the formal discussions that take place um between the civil service and an opposition in the run-up to an election um we, we sometimes refer to as the douglas hume uh, mm. rules meetings and um, can you just quickly sort of remind us um sort of what those are and um and also sort of are there any issues with how it's worked in the past and how it might work in the future yeah, so these they now call them access talks, which at first I resisted because it sounded very ugly, but I have realised that pre-election contacts with the opposition is quite wordy, so <laughs> access talks has won out. Um, so this is the reason why it's unusual is because the civil service serve the government of the day, and although they have contacts with various other politicians, you know, uh, MPs write to government departments all the time, um, there's there's certain amount of contact there, and, you know, some members of the opposition are privy councillors so they get briefings and all sorts there is still a dividing line the civil service serve the current government and they're not supposed to have you know um access to um the opposition party in that way or rather the opposition party don't have access to the civil service so these talks were invented um in the run-up to the 1964 election because the then prime minister alec douglas hume knew that the labor party were thinking about creating the department for economic affairs um uh, splitting the treasury and this was a major machinery of government change and so he knew that it would be helpful for the treasury to be able to do some thinking about this and better for the country so he um, very kindly uh, made sure that they were able to sort of discuss it with some civil servants beforehand and as ever with with British um, constitutional sort of history um, you know a precedent set a convention in place so we now have this quite strong convention that um, I'd say it's strong, we'll come back to the caveat on that, that um, permanent secretaries in particular, often it can be a, you know, a few senior civil servants in any department, go and meet with the shadow and, and the front bench from that department to talk through the plans for government, particularly where there might be machinery government changes that the civil service have to start preparing for, but also if there's major policy shifts that actually mean moving personnel. And the reason being we have these, these overnight changes of government and it is very difficult for a government to hit the ground running uh, or hit the ground um, in uh, a way in a way that is going to be successful if the, the you know the civil service haven't done any kind of preparatory work and from the civil services point of view they can read the manifesto but oftentimes parties will then get into government and say yeah yeah ignore the manifesto we just we just said that actually what we're planning on doing is this so this is an opportunity for them to sort of get to know each other discuss that but there's there's limits to what they can do they um it, the civil service can't be a policy resource uh, so they can't help improve any of the policies um, but they might touch on some of the feasibility issues um, with with policies it's it's kind of like it's a a little bit of a difficult dance um, to try and get that right and it, it can be quite awkward because these are you know permanent secretaries who are serving um, politicians from the opposing side at the moment, the, the incumbent government, um, and, you know, uh, opposition uh, front benches can often be a bit wary of that. Um, and sometimes the personalities don't mix. So um, we've written guides and, you know, again, I've, I've done plenty of talks over the last sort of 14 years uh, with both politicians and civil servants heading towards these when they haven't had any experience to kind of, again, give them a bit of expectation management about them and to reassure them that if they don't 
seem to be working that may not be your fault um you know don't panic there are ways of of sort of improving the situation and resolving it um but the the problem with it is that it is all dependent on the prime minister giving permission um and we have argued that it should be in the sort of um you know the the gift of the cabinet secretary to decide at an appropriate juncture in the run-up to an expected general election when they can start them and that's somewhere around 18 months out from a general election too long and they just kind of wither away uh, there isn't a sense of urgency you know you want to be having maybe one every sort of three four months or something like that so even over a year and a half that doesn't lead to you know too many meetings because you don't want the civil service to get too caught up in this stuff it's they very much have to focus on on continuing to serve the government right up until um, you know the election and uh, uh, you know if there is going to be a change of government if there isn't a change of government you see it can then be very problematic if you have done all of this trying to sort of cozy up with the opposition and then actually you have the same team come back and it all looks a bit awkward yes and there's the famous incident that uh, apparently um, a government minister after 1992 was presented with a, uh, a mistaken brief that had been prepared for mm. the incoming Labour, Labour government. Um, and there's been a lot of talk uh, in recent uh, months and indeed years about um, lots of tensions between ministers and the civil service in the current government uh, on a whole range of issues. Uh, if we go from, from Brexit through to any number of issues uh, and personnel clashes, you talked about personnel clashes between the opposition and, uh, and civil servants. Well, there's certainly been um, some of those in, in government in recent years. Mm. Um, does that add some extra difficulty to this issue um, of an incoming government uh, where there has been this um, sort of clash politically with the civil service of the government of the day? Um, or does that perhaps present some opportunities for Labour to sort of mark a, a difference with the past? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, on the one hand, look, every, I'm not going to say every, but the majority of the opposition parties in the run up to a change of governments, you know, going back sort of 50 years have been wary, suspicious, possibly much longer than that, have been suspicious of the civil service. Thatcher and her team were, um, you know, Tony Blair was, you know, there's always this feeling of like the civil service, they, they know the current lot really well, they'll hate us or, you know, they're far too close to them, they're politicised. There's always this discussion about politicisation. Um, but also the the converse is is kind of argued as if you know the civil service are just desperate for somebody other than this lot to come in the truth is that they do like change but it's not necessarily you know it was certainly isn't of a you know down to the political persuasion of who is coming in oftentimes it's kind of just a chance for a refresh uh, and a reset um sometimes civil servants especially if they've got a minister they get on very well with can be just particularly sad about losing that person um, other times it can be a case of actually the department wasn't achieving what you, you think it could achieve with a good minister and they want a change of personnel so they can sometimes approach reshuffles or as we saw recently a change of prime minister and, and a change of government within a, a governing party um, as as welcome as a, a general election simply because of that kind of refresh feeling uh, and a chance to take stock. And they're also quite wary about change of government because they know there's loads of opportunities for them to get things badly wrong. And in 97, you know, they really didn't 
foresee and understand till quite a way in that dynamic at the heart of it, the people around Blair and how he operated, but also the relationship between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And it took them a while to do that. Whereas in 2010, knowing that they overcorrected in the other way and they were all worrying about personalities, but actually even with a coalition government, the personalities were pretty much fine. What they didn't understand was, um, you know, so I think one of one civil servant put it to me of like that, you know, they'd spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of furniture in the room, but they hadn't really thought about the sort of wider decoration and what they didn't adjust was their language. Um, hmm. So they were still talking the sort of in new labor language um, and, and using phrases that actually or really off-putting to conservative ministers. And, and that can be very hard because political parties, they do have their own language and the, the sort of, and it's deeply embedded in the philosophical um, or, or ideological um, sort of history of a party. Um, and, you know, that's very hard for um, civil servants to get right. I remember one saying about Theresa May, you know, they kept, she, there was a particular policy problem and they kept coming up with more and more sort of solutions of how to do it. And eventually she turned around and said, no, you don't understand. I don't want you to keep telling me more things that government can do. I want us to stop. And, you know, it was that kind of conservative you know, less government is, is what you want. And so the civil service, they obviously look for solutions of government being active because, you know, as a, a sort of bureaucracy, that's that's kind of innate in what you do. And it was hard for them to make that shift. And I think that will be the thing they should be wariest about is um, if there, you know, is a change of government, what is that sort of almost philosophical, politically political philosophy shift that they have to make in in sort of language and in the sort of solutions that you're looking for slightly easier when you go towards you know uh, um, towards labor rather than the conservatives because government is often seen as the solution so um it's a bit easier in that way but there's still always going to be difficulties mm, that's interesting um and um, finally whilst uh, whilst i was in uh, liverpool um, I caught up with Meg Hillier uh, for a, a brief discussion about um, her role chairing the Public Accounts Committee and some of her thoughts on um, scrutiny and, and opposition. And one of the things that she was saying is she thinks that uh, opposition is under-resourced and that there isn't uh, as much support as perhaps there, there should be. This is a debate that sort of goes round and round and it's one that mm. uh, obviously I, I focus a lot on. Uh, but she was talking about, you know, short money perhaps being uh, inadequate and, and needing a, um, an uprating. Um, it's something that did actually happen in the, the first couple of years of the, the Blair government. They did put a significant amount of extra money into short money, which obviously benefited the Conservatives in their early years. Um, where do you stand on that debate? Do you think there is... Um, um, scope for for greater support to opposition parties um, whilst they're in opposition? Um, yes, there definitely is. And there is a general public good to that because um, a good opposition not only means you have better future governments, but it also means that you have good scrutiny of the existing governments. Um, so we should want to support them in doing that. But I am also very conscious, uh, you know, particularly in this country, there is a wariness about the idea of giving politicians money to do politics. Um, and it's quite ironic because on the one hand, we're sort of, we are very sceptical of donations wherever they come from. Mm, People, you know, indeed. 
sort of buying access or or whatever it might be. Um, but at the same time, we're also very wary of giving public money to politicians. And you see that whenever we talk about sort of not just um, the sort of pay rises for MPs, but also even just talking about sort of increased allowances as we had over COVID in order to support your staff, you know, buying all the equipment they needed to do to be able to operate virtually. You know, there was a lot of criticism of that, even though that there was an obvious public good in that. So I am understanding that the idea of just giving, you know, these political parties who um, you know, more money and they'll just spend it on campaigning and so forth. But you need good people doing research and the, there is a massive imbalance, obviously, between um, a government having access to the entire civil service and an opposition party not doing so. There's still a lot more that you can do. And I think, um, you know, the Conservative Research Department, it, it ebbs and flows in its quality. People often focus on the sort of who's the head of it. And um, as you will well know, there are <laughs> various times that people see as the heyday of the CRD. But nonetheless, as a sort of concept, it's quite good. And, and Labour, they um, have never quite managed to sort of uh, fulfil the function in, in quite such a way. Um, it's interesting because I think neither party has really sort of figured out the, the sort of best balance between a centralised research function, which obviously favours um, the leader in particular and sort of consolidates power further in the leader's office, and, um, you know, diffuse um, sort of support where shadows all have their own advisors all developing their own policy. And then you get incoherence, obviously, in terms of what the party's doing as a whole. Um, so there's a lot they can do, I think, internally. And there's a lot that they can do within Parliament as well. I think, um, you know, we can look at things like how to increase support for the libraries in the Commons and the Lords, who do an amazing job already. Mm. Um, and, and that is also about sort of support for the day-to-day -day scrutiny of governments. Um, but, you know, is there more that can be done there, uh, especially as there's even more pressure on on political parties to have all the facts instantly um, because stuff moves on so quickly on Twitter. And, you know, you've got to try and sort of understand very thorny problems and a huge amount of data out there in the world very quickly and not make mistakes. So, yes, I do think we could think about professionalizing further how we support our our um, political parties to make sure that they are in the sort of best possible situation, and particularly MPs who are quite under-resourced when you think about what we are asking them as individuals to do. We, we have this slight understandable sort of, um, not obsession, but um, preference for the idea of, of all our politicians being sort of gifted amateurs who um, are an, sort of, you know, the everyman who walks in off the street and then is able to scrutinise government. We don't want professional politicians who, you know, have spent their entire career doing that. But at the same time, we want them to be experts on everything under the sun and come up with solutions all the time. So there's a bit of a mismatch there, I think. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, we could talk a for a long time about that, it's uh, uh, an issue that um, uh, I sort of I, I want to return to again and again on this sort of issue of um, support for MPs. And of course, mm. as you say, there is the issue of how it's spent because um, even when short money has been in existence, there have been continual rows over how it's spent and uh, the, the division between the leader's office and, and uh, front benches, as, as you say. Kath, yeah. Yeah. Um, great to speak to you again. Um, we've got a very busy week in uh, Birmingham next week. 
Yes, um, I think so. I think it's a record number of events that the Institute for Government is putting on 14 or 15 at the Conservatives over Monday, Tuesday next week. Really looking forward to it. some really interesting events. Obviously, you know, we're sitting here today, we just got back from uh, the Labour conference, and nobody really knows what it's going to be like next week because um, there are uh, there is a lot happening as it were, in London. There is a lot going on uh, in the financial markets, in economic policy. It's difficult to tell how the government en masse will be able to decamp and head off to conference at the moment because, you know, we're on the, the verge of a, a crisis, really. So it, we're kind of not sure what kind of conference this is going to be. Uh, it's going to make for fascinating watching um if you're a neutral um but it's also you know very concerning if your sort of focus is on what needs to be going on in government right now it mm. might feel like a bit of a political sideshow that the country doesn't need yes indeed well i think one thing we can probably both agree on is that um uh, i hope it will be slightly less windy uh, in birmingham mm. than it was in liverpool and um, a bit less rain would be much better <laughs> yes yeah. in, indeed well we might be talking about a different type of opposition um in the, at the conservative party conference um perhaps from um events and the markets and uh, internally perhaps but uh, but for the moment kath thanks so much for joining us and uh, hope to see you in birmingham pleasure see you then Dr. Catherine Haddon there from the Institute for Government and uh, my thanks once again to her for joining us for that uh, slightly longer interview uh, than would have been po uh, possible uh, on a windy and rainy street in Liverpool. So um, that brings us to the end of uh, this episode of the podcast. As I mentioned at the end of my discussion with uh, Kath there, uh, I will be in Birmingham for the Conservative Party conference where I think um, there will be a slightly different um, sort of vibe to things, I think it's fair to say, um, and uh, I'll be doing the same thing again of uh, trying to uh, wrangle guests to speak to us on the podcast uh, whilst I'm up there. Uh, it seemed to work just about uh, this time, um, so I will continue being shameless and trying to grab people as they walk past um, in Birmingham too. Uh, but for the moment, um, thanks very much to Kath, uh, to Meg Hillier MP, uh, and also to Professor Jane Green for joining us on this episode. And uh, I'll be back with another episode towards the end of next week, uh, at the end of the Conservative Party conference, and whatever the next week of politics brings us. But for the moment... Um, that's all for this episode. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Do please make sure that you are subscribed. Uh, do uh, give us a decent rating uh, on whichever podcast app you use. Um, and uh, just spread the, spread the news. We are going to be having more episodes on a hopefully more regular basis uh, as we uh, enter the new political season. Um, so do please make sure uh, you are subscribed so you don't miss any. And go back and listen to some of the previous ones as well um that's all for now i will as i say see you again very soon but until then thanks very much for listening and look after yourselves opposition cast is produced by the center for opposition studies it's presented by me nigel fletcher and our theme music is by tom hector you can find us online at oppositionstudies.net